Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Join the cult of the Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Green. That's Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's the He-Man, Batman slash Ninja Turtle artist, Freddie Williams. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, Casey got a chance to sit down with him and talk to him about his love of comics and his writing and writing, his artwork and yeah. everything. And uh, it's exciting. It's exciting. I wasn't yeah, aware. I wasn't aware of him. It's tough to be a forty-three-year-old artist in today's world. So it is tough. The fact that tough. he's getting all this, you know, that he's actually working <laughs> <laughs> in a weird way. Because, it, and I'm only talking about like COVID and everything that's going on today. Yeah. It's a weird time. And Freddie's like, dude, does some amazing work. Dude's got some skills. That's for have sure. Have you looked at that Batman Turtle run, dude? I have. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So. Casey got lucky enough to talk to him, so should we just sit and listen? We should. We should. All right, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country Podcast. Today on the show, we have Freddie Williams II. Freddie Williams II is an artist and writer. He has done works from Batman Ninja Turtles to He-Man to Robin. He's done a ton of stuff, and uh, he has a very distinctive style, and I really want to get into his his specifics about that. And uh, Freddie, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Casey. I, I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that terrible introduction, man. <laughs> it can it was not go terrible. Up. <laughs> it can only go uphill from there. So it was fine. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I mean, you ate shit halfway through, but I mean, it is okay. <laughs> no, you're so, good. <laughs> so, how you doing, man? How, how, how has things been treating you? How has let me let me be more specific. How has COVID nineteen been treating your productivity, and has it put off any projects that you're working on? Yeah. So. All right. So we had, let's see. So we, as in my wife, Kiki and I, my wife, Kiki is my um, business partner. And she also is my, she helps me with art and she travels with me and she, you know, we do everything together. So we had a whole bunch of conventions planned for this whole year. We actually had 14 shows planned this year and that's the most shows we've ever planned. And this was going to be the year of conventions for us. So uh, that's not going the greatest as you might imagine, but we had... We had six shows planned in six weeks that were going to start in February and go through. It was going to be, let's see, Vancouver, then Hawaii, Texas, and then two shows in Australia. 
then we'd come home and do a show, our local show, which is called Planet Comic Con. And that would be the full six shows. So two of the shows would have been in Australia, but that's just a lot of travel anyway, because the uh, the uh, Hawaii show may as well be a different country just because of how... Oh, uh, yeah, it's a long-ass flight. Yeah. So we got through five of those six shows. And when we were in Australia, we had done Melbourne, and then we went to a place called Gold Coast. Gold Coast is kind of like their version of Hawaii. In a yeah, way. yeah. A small sort of side island there. And we landed in Gold Coast to the news that Tom Hanks and his wife were oh. in Gold Coast uh, film to, to film a new project, and they had just announced that they had COVID. Uh, and they were in, you know, uh, they were in Gold Coast, the same area that we were in, in fact, the very next hotel over. So whenever we got off the flight and we were, you know, getting checked in, you know, Kiki was looking at her Twitter and was telling me about it. And she was like, wait, that's where we are. And then whenever she looked up the hotel, so basically the day before he had been walking around and doing like uh, Tom Hanks had been walking around doing selfies and stuff with, with people on the street, who knows how many of those people oh. make casual contact with him and then, you know, infected or not, who knows. And it was just, a, uh, it was that to me was the first time it felt real. Obviously I knew it was real before that, but before that it felt more abstract because we were basically just traveling, just doing the convention thing. My head was just buried in, drawing things for the show, making arrangements and traveling for the show. And that's it. Now, Kiki ahead of time had, was more cautious than me. Kiki has a nursing background. So she was paying more attention basically than I was. So she, yeah, very smart. She was, she had a thought ahead of time to pack us, you know, gloves, hand uh, sanitizer type stuff, the, the, the sanitizing wipes to wipe down our seats and stuff when we travel and masks and I personally, at the time, at the very beginning of this, so I'm talking about in January when we were, you know, in early February when we, when she was first bringing it up and stuff, I thought it would be similar to, you know, the stuff you hear about, like when we heard about swine flu and, and whatever it was a couple years ago, like maybe eight years ago, whatever it was. And I'm not saying that that's casual and to be thrown away. People got very sick and some people died and that sort of thing. But what I'm saying is that there would be a lot of sort of news hype. And then, yeah. and then in a, like a month later, you'd be like, hey, whatever happened with that? It kind of faded away. And it sounded really serious, but it just went away. And nobody you knew had it or nobody knew that you knew had been affected by it. That's what I was expecting. And that's not at all the case. So when we landed in Gold Coast, it felt much more real. The show itself was better than we thought because in Australia, their government had like decided that the following Monday would be the stay-at-home order or something like that. But this convention was that weekend before. So it was like their rules wouldn't go into effect until the following Monday. It was a weird situation where I think the convention organizers were kind of stuck in like, uh, do we cancel voluntarily? But if so, it's very bad financially. Or do we go ahead but risk something? And I, to my knowledge, nothing bad happened of it. But it, they were just in a really strange position. So then right after Gold Coast, like the very next morning, me, Kiki, our good friend, John Samariva, our good friend, David Yarden, they're Australian artists who David Yarden does work for Marvel all the time. He draws Jean Grey covers and Storm and stuff like that. And then John Samariva, he's done Adventures of the, I'm sorry, what I meant to say was The Avengers, not Adventures. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, like he's done the Batman Ninja Turtle, the animated looking book, the, the one that's called Batman Ninja Turtles Adventures. And he's drawn a bunch of other stuff in Ninja Turtles and stuff. And they're good friends with us. And, and we were all traveling together. 
And we all traveled to this place that we called the beach house, which is in like Colbera, I think is what it's called. It's a place in, in Australia that has a lot of beaches. It's beautiful there. And we were in this beach house drawing, having a good time, not really paying attention to the media. We'd go to a beach, we'd come back and there was hardly anybody at the beach just to let, you know, just to be clear. And then we would come home and, you know, we'd to get out our phones and kind of check stuff. And it was like, wow, it felt like a totally different world. It was like, we were in this sort of a paradise, just hanging out with our friends, kind of uh, quarantining ourselves, even though that wasn't necessarily the goal. But then we would check and see all these scary things that were being announced, you know, like Australia was about to close their borders. The U S was starting to talk about closing their borders. And we were like, we don't even know if we can get back home. You know, our flight was supposed to be on the 22nd of March. And then, they post, I'm sorry, I said that wrong, but maybe the 21st. And then they, our airline kept pushing it back. And so we got in the 23rd of March or something. We weren't even sure if, if that would happen because while we were in the air, when we landed, our next connecting flight was canceled. It was just, and then oh, we wow. had like 10 more hours for the next flight to be available. So, I mean, I don't envy any of the airline workers. They were doing the best that they could. And it was quite the experience. So, it has affected us an awful lot. Like as far as the staying at home part, drawing at home is something that we do all the time. And that's not that big of a change. But while we were in Australia, my next project got canceled for DC. The next crossover that I had planned was canceled. And so once we got back, I like thought I had several, you know, I thought I had that big project that got canceled. And then I was going to have a couple of smaller projects that all got canceled as well. And so I was like, wow, that's... <laughs> That's yeah, a that's really a impact. kick in the gut. Yeah. So, but it gave, it opened up the opportunity. The the next thing that I'm going to be working on, I just signed, signed the contract a couple of days ago. It's going to be a creator-owned book with Tim Seeley, who wrote Injustice versus Masters of the Universe that we worked on together and, and became friends from working on that together. We're going to be doing a creator-owned book over at Aftershock with Mike Martz, who co-created, and he's like the main editor there. He and I worked together at DC and at Marvel. Um, oh, wow. He's a he's an awesome guy, Mike Martz is. So I'm gonna get to work with two of my friends on a creator-owned project, and we'll be starting in a couple of weeks. So can you tell us a little bit about that? That that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. It's going to be. I can't tell you a whole lot about it, but it's gonna be. It's gonna have some fantasy elements in it, and that's the main thing that I was talking to to Tim about. We went to PowerCon last year, which was when Injustice Master of the Universe issue like five or six was about to come out and they had just announced the new Masters of the Multiverse book that Tim was writing and at the time Dan Fraga was drawing um, and we all hung out and went to dinner and we were talking about like let's do a creator-owned book together sometime in the future of course we didn't know this would be the time and he was like well, what do you want to draw I was like I just want to draw something fantasy I played a lot of D&D whenever I was in high school and fantasy is one of my you know first loves so and drawing He-Man is fantasy oriented, but I wanted to do, you know, more of that. So more true fantasy, like elves and wizards and stuff. So there's going to be some elements of that, but it's not only that. And I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm really excited to be working on them. Like Tim is so busy right now. It's a total contrast. He's like writing four different series right now. So I'm just waiting for him to get the, his other, he's about to finish up some other commitments and then he'll start writing stuff for me to actually start drawing. So. That's awesome. Have you gotten into like the, the character design stage or anything like that yet? 
Yes. Yeah. That's what we pitched and that's what got approved over at Aftershock. So I, I did all the character designs and then I drew a, what they call a pitch cover, which will probably be the issue one cover. So it, it's related to the story, but it's more of what they call iconic. So it's less story specific and more of like a general feel of what the story overall will be about. Something that could be used for like a first issue or first cover for a trade or something like that. And Aftershock, man, that company is, they're putting out some, just some fire lately. I love that. I love the books they're putting out. Yeah, they're, it's because they're, they treat the, the creators really well. And Mike Martz specifically, he has like long or deep roots at Marvel and DC. So like back in the 90s, he worked at Marvel for a while. He went over to DC for about eight years and he went back to Marvel for a couple years and then they started Aftershock. So I know personally that was a really big draw for me to, you know, be working there as specifically working with Mike again. So you, you've done art for several years. You, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you've done the arts. You've made yes. the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, how long, how, how hard was it for you to switch over to a, a more, or digital, a more digital look? Because you started in a more traditional fashion, correct? Yes. So, I mean, we're talking about like what feels like ancient history at this point, but I'm happy to talk about it. But it was when I, when I first started the work process, the state of the art work process in comic books seemed to be you drew a thumbnail sketch on a piece of printer paper, what was called typing paper back then. I'm not sure how old you are. I'm an old man. So we called it typing paper. Nowadays, it'd be printer paper. You would draw something about the size of a piece of uh, printer paper. Then you would blow it up to like 143%-ish around in there to make it 11 by 17. So you had this really bad layout sketch on, you know, that was now blown up to be full 11 by 17 size. But then you would light box so you would trace that layout, just the shapes and stuff, onto your good Bristol board in like light non-photo blue pencil. And then you would pencil over that and ink over that, et cetera. So that was like the state of the art. There were some people who would use like projectors, like the old school, high school projectors, where you would do your layout and like put it on the projector and it would kind of project your image onto your artboard and then you'd trace it that way so you wouldn't have to use your light box. I love talking about stuff like that. I love talking about work process and stuff. But what happened for, so that was the state of the art. But whenever I got to, I don't know, about 2000, the year 2000, maybe the year 2001, something like that. I was working on a, on a project with a, with a friend of mine, but I won't name the project because I'm about to say, <laughs> I'm about to say something. He was kind of a picky writer. We're friends <laughs> even now, but we were working to, and uh, to his credit, I was a much more novice artist, so he was correct a lot of the time with with what he was requesting. So it was a combination of me being new and him being picky, that he was asking for a lot of changes. And so I would like turn in some rough layouts for his approval and he'd have like, you know, make this bigger, turn this guy around, blah, blah, blah. And so I would either have to erase my rough layout and redraw it or draw on a separate sheet of paper, the revised layouts, and then scan them in and composite them digitally and then i started just making the changes digital right so i would still draw the first layout on paper scan it in change things digitally and then i just started like any of 
the roughs I was doing, I would just draw them digitally, still print them out like at 11 by 17. So it kept, it, it saved me the trip to like a Kinko's back when Kinko's existed before it was taken over by FedEx office, printed out 11 by 17 and then light box it still manually. And then, so it, what I'm trying to describe is that it was very organic, my growth into a digital direction. And this would have been 2002-ish. I started trying to draw my layouts 100% digital. And then I would start doing what are called breakdowns digital. Breakdowns are like tighter structure drawings. They're not as rough and loose as you know the rough layouts. And then I would print that out just directly on my artboard. Now I didn't even have to light box it. And that, and you know, I'd, I'd print it out in light blue right onto the artboard. And that was like a revelation, you know, because it saved so much time and the tediousness of light boxing something. So by 2004, I guess I was 100% digital at that time. And I stayed basically 100% digital other than commissions or something like that until 2006 and then i started doing like something once i and that was i started working for dc comics in like uh, really late 2005 and by the time i was doing robin drawing robin i would draw basically everything digital except for like a cover or a pinup splash page that i might be able to sell later or something that i wanted to try an interesting inking technique on like a splatter effect or you know that sort of a thing and so it was an evolution to go full digital. And then after a few years of that, I loved working digital, but I started going back to traditional for the inking. And, and now it's almost like painting the ink wash stuff that I do. So now I'm all digital on the layouts and some, and the structure drawings. So the breakdowns, and then I print that out still right on my Bristol board, but I usually print it out in gray. Since I'm doing ink wash, it kind of fades into the, the you know, the ink wash yeah. will or, or blend with the, the light gray. And basically, that's essentially my, my work process now is digital layouts and breakdowns, ink wash on paper. And then I scan it back in and do some digital touch-ups and cleanups and then send it over to the colorist and that sort of thing. Do you think that that kind of helps keep you sharp and uh, keeps you less reliant on being able to just kind of... Uh, nitpick with stuff that you would normally do if you were doing all digital? I had a pretty good handle on how much I should fidget with things that were digital. I've heard horror stories of people who would keep futzing digital, uh, you know, digitally keep futzing with something that was very small and was basically insignificant. And I never really caught myself in that trap, but I fell into a hell of a lot of other traps working digitally that, that I see other newer digital artists falling into like too clean of a line or too samey same is what I call samey same in quotes where the digital brush that they're using gives them the same result. It's too even or it's too predictably thick and thin and, and there's a lack of variety to their line work. And that was totally the same thing that happened to me. I just, I, I think I did it maybe a couple of years before, you know, other artists or something. And so working on paper, what I, what I think it gives me is the enjoy the enjoyment of the tactile interaction with the paper sometimes frustration with the paper stock and stuff but but usually i enjoy it like there's essentially bristol board is what we use and it's made of mainly cotton but <clears throat> sometimes you'll get bristol board that is has kind of an uneven or un uh, what is it irregular sort of finish so that parts of it will feel a little rougher than it should be or it'll take the ink a little different 
than it should. And that in combination with the humidity or how much ink you've loaded into your brush or even how, how old your brush is, all those things add a slight variance of uh, unpredictability that again, can sometimes be frustrating, but usually it's fun because I know, I know the kind of thing I'm going to get. And so it's kind of fun, the overlapping elements of, of unpredictability. And so I wouldn't say that it, it like it stopped me from nitpicking because I, I, I'm taking longer now on the artwork. So I think I nitpick more now on the, the ink wash work, but I'm much more proud of the end result or I feel a much bigger sense of accomplishment when I finish a page or a book or something. And part of the reason that I went this direction, by the way, was uh, one of <clears throat> one of my nieces, probably, I don't know, six, seven years ago at this point, she was here in the studio and I was going through one of my portfolio binders to, at the end of every year, I'll, I'll get all the work that I've drawn for that year printed out and then into a portfolio binder and then I'll sleeve the pages and stuff. And she saw me doing that or I was rearranged them or something and she asked what they were and I told her what I just told you. And then I said, feel free to take a look at them if you want and you don't have to. And so she looked at some of the work that w- when I was younger and she seemed interested partially because I was closer to her, her age at the time. And then when she got to the stuff at DC, for DC Comics, like my more digital clean stuff, and she was seeing it in a form that it was not colored. So it was just like this really open line stuff. It almost looked like coloring book sort of artwork. Yeah. I noticed she started flipping through the book much faster. She had much less interest in each individual page. <laughs> now, she had commented, look how big that book was because that, you know, I had done twice as many pages at this much more open style than the more detailed work, which is much slower. And it's not like, it's not like she looked at me and said, I like the more detailed stuff more or anything, but it was, it was kind of like a revelation seeing somebody else look at it who maybe I don't know. It was like her honest reaction because she was young enough not to like couch her reactions to try to spare my feelings or something, you know, something like that. So anyway, that it's like it fed into something in me that made me feel like, yeah, it's like I'm, I'm proud of the volume of work, but I'm not as proud of each individual page as I would be if I put more detail in it. And so that got me just headed back into more of a detailed direction, I think. So, so I I was looking into your stuff earlier today about about when you decided to switch to doing a more ink wash technique mm-hmm. and it kind of made me think so in 1997 augusta national golf course right tiger woods bam kicks everybody's ass <laughs> yes. uh, immediately yeah. immediately goes to a, a a swing coach and changes up a swing Completely changes up his swing. And it kind of made me think of that because around the time that you changed your art style, you had, you had recently either you had just, you were about to win an Eisner or you had just won an Eisner for your, what is it? Mr. Miracle, Seven Soldiers or Seven Soldiers, Mr. Miracle. So what was that like jumping off the deep end going, I'm going to change how I do things. <laughs> I, I want to, it, I could see why why you, you would connect those those series of events, but actually, who won the Eisner was Grant Morrison, who was the main architect. But the reason that I know, because technically, I I I earned or won one thirtieth of an Eisner or something, because <laughs> it's like <laughs> Grant Morrison. It's 
it's like Grant Morrison for the Seven Soldiers series. And the Seven Soldiers series was like five or six different miniseries, including the one that I drew, the, the one that I drew part of. So it's more credit to to Grant Morrison because he orchestrated this big, strange event that worked so well. And I was just a part of that. And it took a couple years for the, you know, for him to win that Eisner or for that series to win that Eisner or something like that. So I think that's probably, so I don't think that the two events are as, as connected as it might've seemed in the dates, but I could see why you'd make that connection. For, so you're telling me you're not the Tiger Woods of, of art, of all of art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's always underneath my, my credits. It's like, Freddie Williams, the self-proclaimed Tiger Woods of comic <laughs> No, <laughs> I'm definitely not. So I, you know, I'm, I made like a a huge leap there, at connecting like art with comics. But I mean, it it really is. It's it's a guy at who is, you know, recognized as being you know at the top of his game, like really putting out great work, and going, you know what. I'm going to do this, you know, with my mouth now. I'm I'm going to hold the brush <laughs> in my mouth and and do it that way. Screw you guys. Yeah, there was definitely a big change. So so from a publisher standpoint, what DC was used to to hiring me for was a, a more simplified, slightly more cartoony, less rendered art style. And whether I did that digitally or did it on paper, it was still this the way that I just described to you. So from their perspective, they didn't care what I did on paper or what I did digital. It was just as long as I was delivering the work they expected on time. And I'm, I've always prided myself and built our life really around the artwork really being the focus of, of our lives essentially. So, but, but separately from what I was doing at DC for a few years, I started working in an ink wash style as an experiment and as a way to reconnect with one of the the artists that I I love, I don't know if you know who Travis Charay or Travis. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I believe it's pronounced Charay, but I always used to pronounce it Charist, like with this really my, hard. Yeah, my redneck caps is like I love that Travis Charist man. He's... <laughs> but yeah, yeah. if um, if you've only ever read it, then I mean, yeah, likely you would be like me and and say charist or you know how how you had said it to rest but i think it's charay i believe so but he drew first of all i love his artwork especially around the time that he was at at wildstorm he was inspiring and intimidating his work is so powerful and it rapidly evolved in just a couple of years it's like he had 20 years of evolution in just like two or three years it was outrageous but but amazing stuff and um the style that he worked in that gripped me, or one of the styles he he worked in that gripped me, was on a book called uh, Wildcats X Men Golden Age. I think that's what it was called. And it was there was a series of crossovers where it was Wildcats and X Men, but it was like told through by different artists through through the years or through the decades. And he drew the one that focused on Zealot, who's from Wildcats, and then Wolverine, of course, from X Men. And because they're both so long lived, they told he told a story of them during World War II, and I believe oh, it was. I'm looking at the art now, and it's fantastic. Yes. It's amazing. It's amazing, and it holds up, and it blows almost everything away out there on the the shelves nowadays. Not everything, but most of you know, it's very good. And this stuff now, at this point is like 20 years old, which is crazy okay. to me, because it looks so good, and it's also 
a period piece. It's artwork that is made to look like it's from the forties, but it's, you know, uh, it still holds up in 2020. But what I'm getting at is he started off that book. If you see the originals or if you see it without color, he started off the book working in a pen and ink style. So just a bunch of thin lines that created shades of gray, the rendering, but by like page three or four or five, he started introducing gray tones in ink wash. And that was the first time I'd ever seen ink wash. The first time I had heard of it. Of course, people have been working in diluted India ink, you know, for, you know, a hundred years before that, but that was the first exposure to me. And it was an artist that I love their work so much. And by the end of that book, most of the rendering is in ink wash with, you know, some pen and ink rendering in there. And I read some interview with him. I don't think it was published in that book, but maybe it was in Wizard Magazine or something where he described that he got a few pages into this book and he thought, man, this is just taking so long to draw everything with all these individual thin lines. I wonder if there's a way I can get, you know, a gray tone in quotes with, you know, another way. And so he, that's what prompted him to create some ink wash and little jars. So he would had like five different jars and he put like a lighter value in one, then a medium, then a heavier, heavier values. And then he, that's what he would brush or paint with. And um, that style was intriguing to me. So now flash forward to like the year 2007 or eight, so this would have been, I guess, what, 10 years after he drew his book, I started experimenting with that on commissions. So the, you know, commissions are just like for private collectors. It's not for publication. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I would like kind of clear it with the, the uh, art collector. I'd be like, you know, hey, how about gray tones on this one? And they would say, yeah, sure. And then I would try you know, all these different effects to try to get the gray tones that I was after. And it was like a fun way to get, a, you know, get paid to experiment with a rendering style that I was interested in. And um, DC wouldn't necessarily have seen these, but it was like I was developing this style, you know, quietly. And so I started doing certain, like Captain Adam, when that came around in t- 2012, which was a part of the New 52 um, I drew that and I didn't do it in ink wash at the beginning. I did it with like these sketch and wash pencils that would let you kind of create a half a gray tone, but with uh, pencil lead where you would pencil onto the page with this pencil and then you would use a water brush and it would kind of <laughs> liquefy it and smear it around and turn it gray. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's I would recommend it for anybody who wants to experiment with gray tones, but doesn't want to get into all the paraphernalia of ink wash like it's just a water brush and this pencil, you're pretty used to using a pencil. So you likely, you know, that part won't feel that weird. And then the water brush you can kind of experiment with. And if you don't smear it around enough, you can always reliquify it and smear it more. And that was a breakthrough sort of experiment, a series that allowed me to experiment a lot. And uh, although DC, they were like, you know, some editors were like, we love all this experimentation. It's just great to see you trying all these new styles. And then there was another editor I worked with later who said, let me tell you, you're scaring the hell out of some of us. <laughs> That's actually what he said to me. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, I can still work in the other style, the pen and ink style, if that's what you want. And then I ended up working in that on it. So after Captain Adam, I went to Green Arrow. I drew. And so Captain Adam was like this really funky style that I just described. And then uh, Green Arrow was like a traditional pen and ink style again. And then I also did uh, The Movement, which was a book written by Gail Simone in a pen and ink style. And those were the books that I was working on right before I I did this eight page short story for Dark Horse of Conan. 
for an anthology they had called a Robert E. Howard Savage Sword. So it would just be like a bunch of, you know, Robert How uh, Robert E. Howard properties. He invented Conan, but he invented other ones too. And I drew an eight-page short story in ink wash, and that was the first time I drew it sequentially. And I was using ink wash throughout instead of this, you know, instead of the gray tone pencil that I was describing. Yeah. And I had a great time on it. I knew that I could do it sequentially. It didn't feel too muddy to me because there's some types of styles that you get into and you're like, what have I done? I cannot possibly maintain this, this, I don't know, this workload or this stamina to keep this going. You know, like if you were drawing something that you only had a week to do and you were spending, you know, a full day on one panel, you would be like, what the hell have I done? What have I started here? You know? But with the, you know, with a little bit of extra time on my deadline, I could do this much more detailed, labored over page uh, of ink wash. And that Conan work, along with a few covers I did for DC, is what got me on to Batman Ninja Turtles. And that's the same style I, I've been working in mostly since then, which would have been from 2015 all the way up to now. So when you did that, that thing for Dark Horse, what, were you, did it kind of freak you out when you turned that final page in? get everything ready to print were you just kind of waiting for somebody to talk to talk about it or by <laughs> then were you established enough in in your style in in your new style to to feel fairly confident about it i felt freaked out mainly because that same short story i also had to color and so i did pencils ink oh, wash wow. and color on it and I didn't really know what I was doing on the color so much. And so even looking back at it, I think I kind of botched the colors and we had to turn it around really quickly. So I was at the Phoenix Comic-Con that year, which would have been, I think, 2014. And we, Kiki, when I say we, I mean Kiki, she stayed back at the hotel and was working on what's called color flats. So she was like flatting out the pages, laying in the, the solid colors. And then I was at the convention and then finishing up like the last page of that or something. And we had like just like a day or two once we got back from the show to turn in the pages. So that's what, what I was actually freaking out about the most. But after that, I'm not even sure what my very next project was. There was something that kept me in, in between there about a year. And I switched, I remember switching back from the ink wash stuff to the pen and ink stuff for that next. Maybe it was, there was a project called brain boy that I worked on over at dark horse that has brain a terrible, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a terrible name, but it's, it's written really well. And the character is really cool. I really like the character. Frank, I'm sorry. Fred Van Lente is the one who wrote it and he did an awesome job. I, I really like how he wrote him so flippantly, but vulnerable still. And I did some other stuff over at dark horse as well. But so it was, I, what I felt like when I turned in that Conan story is at least now I have a project that I could point to under my belt, a small project, but a, a project that I could point to and say, this is what I could do if you give me the chance, you know, who would be cool? You know, is there anybody who would let me work in this style? Who knows? I don't know. But then, it, you know, Jim Chadwick, my editor on Batman Ninja Turtles is the one who gave me the thumbs up. That's great. That's awesome. And, and <laughs> that style, I've always loved that style. When I was a kid, I used to be drug around to all of like the little, like the flea malls and stuff like that mm -hmm. in the antique shops. And they would always have seventies horror comics and they would, the art in those comics, like the, the writing, maybe not the best all the time, but some like huge people would be doing the art and it would be in like the ink wash style. And that was also my first exposure to Wally Wood in mm -hmm. his artwork where, I mean, he was a master with a pen. So yes. uh, 
Yeah. And I mean, he would have people basically do like the rough layouts of the page and he just go in and do everything in ink. And so, yeah, but it, it creates a great mood that, that kind of ink wash style or yeah. Wally Wood was a master, of course, you know, I'm, I'm friends with, um, with Kevin Eastman. I'm, I'm pleased to say he's a really, really nice guy. He told me a story that was kind of disturbing and I was going to, I'm going to run it by you and see if you've ever heard of this before. So Wally Wood apparently was a very depressed person. Like in like, oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard yeah. he was a, a kind of an ass. Oh, and I don't even know that. That's, you know, like Kevin didn't tell me that part, but he said that Wally Wood was asked once, like, if you could do it, The question was something along the lines of if you could do it over again, what advice would you give yourself when you were younger or something like that? And he said, if I could go back and do it all again, I would chop off my own hands and never oh become God. a cartoonist. And when when Kevin told me this, I was like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, he was like really dark and that he also committed suicide. But I don't know if that's true. I don't know if either of those facts are true. I was going to ask if, you know, if you're since you're a big fan of, of Wally Wood, if maybe you heard those or. I've heard the suicide thing. I've also heard he had like I think he had like issues with with substance abuse. Oh, okay. um, like he was trying to self-medicate and stuff, sure. but uh, he, wow. he had a ton of talent and th- that, that quote though, makes me think of the Jack Kirby quote was comics will break your heart. Yes. Yeah. I've heard yeah. that as well. Yeah. It's yeah, a little bit, you know, more extreme, but yeah, it kind of falls in line <laughs> with the same way. Yeah, yeah. Just, a, just a smidge. Just, just a smidge. A smidge yeah, uh, yeah. Comics will break your heart versus chopping off your own hands to to stop you from ever drawing comic books. But it's a similar sentiment. You know, it's probably coming from the same point of of hurt. You know, there there is another apocryphal story I've heard about him in that he would slowly increase the size of Power Girl's bust, <laughs> <laughs> and just. To see if the editor was paying attention. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. You If if you like Power Girl, you can thank good old Wally Wood. <laughs> yeah, that might be one of the reasons that she stayed around all these years, though, because that is definitely a, a distinguishing characteristic of hers. It's, it's a look. It's a look. <laughs> I mean, she can't help it. But, yeah, that's, that, <laughs> she that's good old Wally Wood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, he was super, you know, prolific and everything. But maybe he just had to be because the market wasn't that good at the time, and and maybe if he had a substance abuse problem, then that you know made him need to draw faster to to feed it. You know. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you did, you did Batman Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. How was that experience? Because I mean, how how do you marry those two worlds? <laughs> to me, they felt married essentially from the the two movies that came out whenever I was a kid. So the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film and then the 1990 Ninja Turtles live action film have a back to back. Yeah, back to back and a very similar visual language. Now, the Tim Burton Batman film was more colorful, but they had a similar use of like heavy, moody shadow and sort of stage lighting and that sort of thing. At least it felt like that to me at the time. And uh, I was into both of them around the same time in my life, like as far as the comic books and stuff. So uh, I feel like that preconditioned me to associate the two of them together. Plus there's 
you know, a heavy overlap in the type of mythology or the lore for the for those worlds. And so it felt very natural to me. The grittiness of the turtles versus the grittiness of the type of Batman story that we were telling. But as far as the specifics, like I had a couple of years before I, you know, Batman Ninja Turtles was a reality. I had heard from Bobby Curno, who was the editor for the, or it still is the Ninja Turtle editor over at IDW. And I was pestering him trying to do some other Ninja Turtle work because I'd done a, a cover and some other like commission work, you know, for private collectors. But other than just that one cover, I, I just wanted to do more. And Bobby had said, you know, there's some talks in the works that there might be some crossovers between IDW and properties and DC properties. And if that happens, you're, you're kind of a no brainer for it because I had such a, an established relationship with DC Comics. And, uh, but he didn't say specifically with Batman and the Turtles. He just said, you know, the Ninja Turtles with something over at DC. But like two years passed and I hadn't heard anything more about it. So I just assumed that that had fallen apart because that type of thing happens all the time where a business deal starts, but then something falls apart in contract negotiations. But then one day I saw this retweet by my editor at the time, Jim Chadwick, and it was a retweet of Star Trek and Green Lantern. That was going to cross over, so that's IDW and DC. And I thought, oh, that's pretty neat. They they must have worked out some sort of paperwork. If that if they have this crossover, probably there's other crossovers that they're thinking about. So I shot Jim Chadwick in it, you know, an email, and we had a good working relationship anyway. But I sent him an email and said, hey, you know, I saw this, you know, Green Lantern Star Trek thing, and if you guys are going to be doing some sort of crossover with like Batman and the Ninja Turtles, please keep me in mind. Here's a link to my Conan work which was the eight page ink wash story that I told you about and some of this Ninja Turtle work I had done. And also Jim Chadwick, I had already drawn some like Batman related stuff for him. So he knew I could draw Batman. And he told me later that, you know, they were joking in the office that I must've been psychic because that was the day they were talking about the potential artist's choice for that series. And I just so happened to have really good timing I never have good timing ever in my life. Okay. Um, so this was <laughs> very out of character and I'm very lucky uh, that Jim Chadwick said yes. And that, you know, Nickelodeon who owns the Ninja Turtles and IDW, all of those people said yes. It coincidentally, you know, I, Jim Chadwick, who I'd already been working with, he was the editor, uh, for the book. And I didn't know he was going to be, uh, Joan Hilty, which is an editor I worked with when I was drawing the flash. she, is now at Nickelodeon and she was, she's the, like the person who approves the talent that's going to work on the Ninja Turtles. And so she knew who I was, that I was, you know, hopefully going to do a good job and stuff. So all of that stuff fell into place in a way that I did not know consciously and did not, you know, try to orchestrate it. Just, I got really lucky because it, anybody would have loved to draw this series. I mean, and, and potentially would have done a, a great job and I just got really lucky. So I the first thing I did when I got the assignment was because I had a couple months before the first couple scripts would would come in. Uh, I did this did these style guides for myself, kind of to run it by my editors and just to prove not prove to myself, but to establish to myself what kind of care what the visual language of the characters. So like, you know, how big and stocky would I make Batman? How big and uh, stocky would I make the turtles? And what sort of things would I do to try to differentiate them from one another. And all of that stuff took me like about a week uh, to put together. And then I emailed it to DC and to IDW and they all said, Hey, that looks great. And I said, really, you don't have any notes. They're like, no, it looks great. 
looks like you have a good idea. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I just expected it to be harder than that. You know, <laughs> I expected you to, you know, give me some notes or something, but they liked everything I did. And that was the visual motif that I went with, but it, it just felt like a really natural fit as far as the types of worlds and the visual language. That's awesome. And, and your work on that book is insane. It is fantastic. Um, <laughs> Thank you. If you don't mind me fanning out a little bit. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. <laughs> how, how was your, how was your uh, experience working with, with Tinian? James is awesome. I, this was our first project together and he, we were both, you know, he, he had a more established name, I think as a Batman guy. And now it's gotten much bigger. Oh yeah. yeah. Batman, you know, books. And so the first issue that he that he turned in, I was like, I, I honestly can't think of a better. This couldn't have been better. Basically, he has like a, or had or has a, a great take on the characters in a way that fits for a, a great large story, but also it makes room for like these small character moments throughout. So it keeps you entertained and engrossed on both levels. That's a hard thing to do, by the way. It's to keep you engaged on both levels. So. And then since then we've become friends and have, you know, so the, the working relationship on that first volume was more like he was writing a full script, except for, you know, like the towards the end of the first series, we had worked together so much by that point that he left things a lot more in quotes open, which is where the script isn't written fully as much. It's more written in a plot method. And then we worked together in the plot method on all of volume two and that was partially to accommodate. He had a really busy schedule during the 2017 uh, timeframe. We were working on it. And then in 2019, so last year when we did Batman Ninja Turtle Volume 3, it was kind of a combination of the two where he left anything that was action. He left it very open in the plot method for me to pace out. And then anything that was more dialogue heavy, he wrote a full script on. So it was like a nice balance of the two. So he's an awesome guy. He's brilliant and uh, very humble. So it's great to work with somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you guys, obviously you have a great working relationship because you, you, you've done several of those books. Any plans for, for any more of the uh, Batman Ninja Turtles? I have a plan for a hundred more volumes personally. <laughs> I want to draw them forever. No, there's, there's ideas that it's like, whenever you're working on a creative endeavor, you have, you're kind of inside of that world enough that you start thinking of possibilities that are really good ideas, but they don't necessarily work for the project that you're actually writing or actually putting together at that moment. So James and I have ideas for future volumes and we've talked about the potential if, if it presents itself and I hope it does, but that just on an aside, like those decisions are made much higher above our head than, oh, yeah. than what we can control usually. So I've made it really clear to DC and to IDW, and, and then also James has as well, that we call dibs on <laughs> if there's more <laughs> volumes that we definitely are interested and that we would love to do it uh, and that we'd love to work together on another one. But I think that the contract stuff is is really where that would take place, you know, is if, if they figure out something again, uh, some ar arrangement, so... I hope they do, and I hope they call us back. <laughs> Speaking of contract stuff. Yeah. He-Man Thundercats. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're, you're only a few years older than I am, so I'm assuming that you, you had experience with both of those as, as a kid. 
definitely. How how was that experience? Did did you enjoy did you enjoy getting into that world? And also just as somebody who who works on properties that you have several people, not just one editor doing oversight, you have several different people. This also applies for the uh, Batman Ninja Turtle thing. Mm-hmm. How nerve wracking is that to have so many people kind of looking <laughs> over your shoulder? Is it? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> it's a very, I mean, it's, you're right. You're right. It is, it can be nerve wracking because, so there's already an expectation I'm putting on myself because I, you know, as you, you know, to answer your question about if I, you know, we're familiar with those two properties or, you know, because we're about the same age and stuff. Yeah. When I was about in third and fourth grade, those He-Man and the Thundercats were the two best, you know, cartoons along with Voltron, you know, GI Joe came in a little bit later, but Transformers, of course, you know, I'm not wanting to leave anything out here. I'm just saying that He-Man and Thundercats specifically really gripped me and they have a very different animation style, but they feel similar in the type of tone, like a fantasy mixed with advanced technology and magic and all this stuff. So there was a high expectation for myself and like a fear of like, don't screw this up. The same thing with Batman and Ninja Turtles. And this was like, you know, Batman and Ninja Turtles that came out when I was about those two movies came out when I was like 12 or so, something like that. I think maybe 13 because I haven't done actually the math, but the the He-Man and the Thundercat stuff came out, you know, when I was younger. So like maybe eight or nine or something. I don't know. So I've, I've got the whole timetable mixed up, but it's it's something like that. But the, the point I'm making is that the the properties are awesome. I associated them together as well when I was younger because I had toys, even though they were very different scales. Like Lionel was way taller than He-Man as far as the toys because they were the, the Thundercats were at least the one that had the light up eyes and stuff, the uh, Lionel that had the light up eyes, he was almost like as tall as a Barbie doll or something. And then the the He-Man toys were much shorter and more squat, you know, but the, as far as having so many, you know, so many people to be accountable to or so many editors and stuff that is, that can be nerve wracking. can be a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Potentially uh, I had worked at Hallmark cards right before I started working at DC Comics. There was a little bit of an overlap there when I was still working at Hallmark and and when I first started working at at DC. And in Hallmark at the time, I was working in the licensing department. And so I was used to having licensor approvals and having several checks and balances of approval. So I think that prepared me a little bit for many years later when I started, you know, working on Batman Ninja Turtles and then later He-Man Thundercats. There was, there's a certain level, I think the, there's a establishing trust point in the relationship when you first start, that's probably the most important time. It's like establishing yourself that you're open to suggestion and criticism, that if you choose, uh, if you make a decision, hopefully they'll see that you're making it not out of ego, but because you think it's for the betterment of the project but you're willing to, so you only pick your battles if you really think you're correct, but you're still willing to work with them and then they feel the same way. It's And so on that level, it's almost like just establishing trust with friends and coworkers, you know? And so with He-Man Thundercats, it was like towards the end of Batman Ninja Turtles, I was working on issue five or six, like I was pretty close to the end of it. And I contacted Jim Chadwick and I said, uh, we're getting pretty close to the end of Batman Ninja Turtles. Do you have any other projects? I would love to do some more crossovers if you have something like that in mind. 
And he wrote back and he said, yeah, we're thinking about doing something. I think he said DC just acquired the license to Thundercats. So we're thinking about doing something with them. That might've been his response. It was something like that. And I replied back and said, I would love to draw a Thundercats reboot. And if you guys are still doing crossovers, you know, I would love to cross them over with He-Man if that's a possibility. And that was one of the many things that they were talking about at the time because they have a good relationship with Mattel who holds, who holds the, um, license for he-man and so i think that was already kind of in the works as a possibility and since i was expressing interest then they ran my artwork by the guys at mattel and it worked out pretty well there was a little bit of a stumbling start when i first started with them just to i had never worked with mattel before and just getting you know getting connected so as opposed to you know i'd worked with bobby who was an idw editor and worked with joan hilty who was at nickelodeon and of course worked with jim chadwick at dc now suddenly i was working with a, a new group of people so there was you know the first issue was a little bit rougher but we established a good working relationship after that and then after that it was it was much easier throughout the rest of the series what's yeah, that okay uh, i was gonna say smooth sailing after the rest of it so yeah. Just putting this out there, man. Next time, if if you do another He-Man Thundercats, mm-hmm. I hope so. I hope to, but go ahead. <laughs> just, I'm gonna put a bug in your ear, okay? Mm-hmm. Snarf and Orko, they gotta go, man. <laughs> What'd you say? They gotta go. They gotta go. I'm putting a hit <laughs> out on Snarf and Orko. They irritate the dog shit out of me. <laughs> I'm going to piss a ton of He-Man fans off. Orko <laughs> is awful. I, I recently watched the the Christmas special, the She-Ra He-Man Christmas special with my uh, five-year-old because she loves it. And Orko, like, idiot. Yeah, <laughs> not a fan. And Cringer. Yeah, fuck Cringer. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow, there's a lot of vitriol in that. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm done, dude. I'm putting my foot down. it's been nearly 40 years Mm -hmm. done the time is up for them huh i'm gonna i'm gonna call mattel up uh tomorrow man let him know i will (laughs) we gotta just knock it off with orco and let that let dc know as well that's funny yeah i i'm 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 fine with them i think they're There is, I mean, if I watch, because we, Kiki and I, sometimes we'll have stuff on in the background in the studio here. Uh, sometimes we're listening to our own stuff in our headphones, but then other times we'll turn on something, like watch it in the background. And we were watching some some He-Man in the background once, uh, or not, it, it was right before we started doing all this travel at this point. So now it was, you know, four or five months ago, but, and uh, there was this. So nothing really weird happened with Orko, but there was this, there was, I can't remember the the name of the episode, but like He-Man gets a log thrown at him. A log hits him in the head and it knocks him unconscious. And I was, I actually, I yelled out in the studio. I said, what? <laughs> I was pointing at the screen, like, cause I wanted, I wanted Kiki to make sure she had seen it. Cause she like, she might not have been looking or paying attention right then or something. And I was like, you know, Tim Seeley and I were, and he, so in Injustice versus Masters of the Universe, Superman, the Injustice Superman, who is, you know, equal in strength to the normal Superman, but he's more tyrannical and more evil, or just less good, maybe is the right way to say it. He, like, used his heat vision on on He-Man, 
And in the script Tim had written, we've never really seen He-Man injured before. So we're not sure exactly what he should look like when this happens. Like, we're not sure should he blister and peel like because he's being hit with the eyes of, you know, sun rays or whatever the hell, laser vision, heat vision. Or is he resistant to it entirely? Or does he is he injured and then immediately heal? Like these are the conversations we were having. And I also felt the same way. I had no memory of seeing He-Man injured. And here we just saw him. Now, he wasn't visual. He didn't have like a gash on his head where it was bleeding, but he did get hit with a log and was just knocked unconscious. And it was it felt like surreal to me because I never knew he could be vulnerable to a log attack. <laughs> like to me, that was a bigger deal than seeing Orko or do it or Snarf or Cringer or anything, you know, kind of mucking up the works just because I part partially because I just didn't remember. I didn't think it was even possible for a log to knock him out. I love that that is your work discussion. <laughs> that is um, that is amazing to me, and it makes me so happy that 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 is like a serious conversation you have at work. Like, what what are we gonna do about? <laughs> does he does he get hurt? Yeah, that is that is rad. Rad. that's so yeah. rad. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there were several um, times throughout the process of working on He Man Thundercats and and you know Batman Ninja Turtles that I would look over at Kiki and say. You know, I can't believe I'm getting to draw this stuff for a living. It's it feels totally surreal. And so, you know, it's like there are long hours involved and sometimes sitting at a desk for that long, you can, you know, your hand hurts or your wrist hurts or your back or neck or whatever. But this, you know, other than stuff like that, which is just like the nature of being a human, there's really I mean, it it's like a dream come true that so i'm i know and remind myself often how really lucky i am that i get to do this kind of stuff for a living that that's amazing and, and i, I want to get into that in a little bit and about how you take care of yourself and how you you're you're married you you have somebody <laughs> else in your life that uh, <laughs> at the end of the day sometimes she's like i don't want to hear about a damn comic i, I want you buddy so i, I want to hear about that a little bit First, though, uh, like, are you excited for the new He-Man? Th- there are two new He-Man shows coming out. There's the Kevin Smith-elmed Masters of the Universe, and there's also a more kid-friendly Masters of the Universe cartoon, also on Netflix. And we actually talked to Amanda Dybert, who was one of the head writers from that show. And I think that the interest in He-Man is is going to pick up quite a bit. I mean, it, it's, you know, thank no. Th- no small thanks to you guys. It's, you know, been building even more. And I'm also wondering if maybe that's kind of what helped get it where it is today, where they're they're actively making two new cartoons based on that property. So are, are you planning on watching those series when they come out? Oh, sure. I, I will definitely watch the Kevin Smith run one. I haven't even heard of the other one, to be honest. Um, I, I don't pay real close attention to like the comic sites or anything that, that talk about the new announcements or anything. So the, I was, but I was at PowerCon whenever the Kevin Smith thing was announced and he was walking around there at PowerCon. And so I got to, I wasn't in the panel with him, but I heard it as a rumor and then saw him walking around and talking to the press and stuff. So that sounds really cool. And I'm quite interested to see that. He, he has a new villain named Berserker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm joking. I just made that up. That was <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know. I would have been like, I'm, okay, I'm yeah. a Kevin Smith nerd. Uh, anyway, <laughs> probably should have gone with Cock Puncher or Cock Knocker. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I watched all of the the evening with Kevin Smith's the the three evening and the you know all that stuff. He can uh, spin a yarn, man. Yeah, yeah, he's very interesting. I I feel like I got to go with him on the journey with his love for uh, Bruce Willis and then disappointment of working with him. It felt very heartbreaking to hear all that stuff. So all of that was. I'm I'm a fan of listening to Kevin Smith probably more than most of the films even, but I you know still like Clerks and Dogma and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, and I heard that there's a new Jay and Silent Bob Get Old or something that's going to come out, so I'm sure I'll see that as well. Oh yeah, yeah. There's actually a, a film on Prime where he's uh, like the new what is it? It's. Uh, it's like a sequel to Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I saw a little bit of it the other day, but like my usual work day starts at 4 a.m. Yes. So by the time I'm able to actually sit down and watch something without a, a five and a nine year old sitting around me, it, like I'm dead, dude. I'm out. Yeah, of <laughs> I can totally see that. Yeah, that is really rough getting up at, at that early. So, oh, yeah. Um, so work life balance. Say again, my life balance. Work-life balance is a nice segue into that, like finding how to do what you do and kind of be cohesive with your significant other, with your family. How, how How does that happen? What do you do? Since Kiki and I work together all the time, I mean, we work and chill and hang out together and I just can't get enough of her, to be honest. Like we work together in the studio all the time, but we're kind of on opposite ends of the studio. So we're not always talking, but we're still like coworkers in that sense. And then we travel together to any conventions and, you know, hopefully those will start up again after the pandemic, you know, if, if things get under under control more, but, but we have and travel, travel to a bunch of different countries together and all that. And then whenever we actually, ha- if I have a night off, I just want to hang out with Kiki and, you know, watch, like sit on a couch and watch a movie or, you know, go with her to a movie back when people, people could, yeah, yeah, (laughs) whenever people could move freely uh, to theaters and stuff. So, but really it's like the balance to me is that Kiki and I work together. So, you know, and we don't, we don't have children. We do have 14 nieces and nephews that we see occasionally. Uh, Kiki sees them a little bit more than, than I do, but we, you know, we're the, the balance, everything is, is off. I mean, as far as the the balance of my work versus the rest of my life, you know, Kiki and I were good, but then almost all of my personal and family relationships have totally suffered because of the amount of time that I'm devoting to the artwork and stuff. So I don't, I couldn't say there's much of a balance on that end. As far as like exercise or other interests and stuff, I basically do stretches every morning while I'm making the coffee. <laughs> That's the, about the extent. And and I do some exercises while I'm brushing my teeth. So the combination, of, and then every throughout the day, I'll, I'll take breaks and stretch and that sort of thing. But that's really about it. So I'm not in particularly great shape, but I'm at least kind of limber. And then I usually don't see my friends except for maybe once every six months. Real honest, <laughs> it's, it's not. A, and I, you know, I've made clear, we'll occasionally text and that sort of thing. We keep in con- some contact like that, but man, I, it's just a, all of my like hobbies and interests and passions and career and, you know, making money, everything is just wrapped into comics. So 
if you know, I find interest in studying comic book artwork. So it's like a hobby to me to pick up sometimes old, sometimes new uh, comic books and try to dissect what makes that comic book page work. And then I find interest in you know, this new rendering technique or this new shadow attempt, like attempting this really heavy shadow look or whatever on the next on on a horror project or something. So that to me is entertaining and it's a hobby. So everything is just kind of wrapped up into that. It's, and then unfortunately, all my, all my friends and family relationships have suffered because of it. Well, it sounds like you married your best friend. So that yeah. is, I mean, you, you have a, you have a really awesome partner to, to kind of help you navigate all this stuff. So. Yes, that's a perfect description. And the first night that, so Kiki and I went to high school together, but we, I was a geek. And then we had like three or four friends. And then she was actually a jock. Like she played volleyball and basketball and softball. And I mean, she, she was in ROTC and everything. And But she was kind of a closet geek. So most of her friends didn't, weren't into that kind of stuff. So she read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And and I have never read those. So she's more of a geek in the fantasy world. But what what connected us, the first, the first time I was like, wow, you're awesome, was so after high school, she was hanging out with some of uh, a group of friends that were also hanging out with my friends. So we just had an overlapping group. And one night we were talking and I found out that she read ElfQuest and ElfQuest was one of the books. The that yes. Yeah. Whitney Penny is amazing. Her art style still holds up now. Some of her inking techniques are a little dated, but that's because she, she drew them in the seventies and eighties. I mean, she inked in the seventies and eighties, but her, her fusion of like American cartooning and her characterization mixed with Disney mixed with manga all together was revolutionary at the time. I mean, it was a popular independent series and stuff, but it still holds up. It still looks pretty contemporary even now. And it's been 30 plus years, which really says something about her art style. But when Kiki and I were talking that night, I had said, have you ever heard of ElfQuest? She was like, yes, ElfQuest. And I, and she said, yeah, there was a couple of books at the library that I used to check out. And one of them was ElfQuest all the time. And then the book went missing. This is what Kiki was saying. And I started laughing really hard because I was like, yeah, I'm the one who stole the book. That <laughs> ElfQuest book, book three, the, the one with the blue cover and cutter is like kneeling. And then like one of the tall high elves is like standing. I, I forget the names at this point, but I, I, the artwork is what I'm most interested in, to be honest. I stole that. I have it. I'm looking at it right now. It's right on our shelf, right in front of my awesome. face. And she said, she was like, yeah, they told me someone stole it. You're the jerk that stole that. Like, and we like hit it off. I mean, we were, and then there was a bunch of other, of other overlaps as well that she was, had never tried role-playing games, but it was something that kind of interested her. And then that's actually how we started hanging out. We were playing um, Vampire the Masquerade. And then we played some Palladium book stuff, which is like Riffs and uh, Heroes Unlimited and stuff. So you have since um, paid for the book. Oh, sorry. What's that, Kiki? I said you have since paid for the book. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. She, so, so I have since contacted that library and I purchased that book. I, in okay. fact, so, so yes. So everybody can. can I'll have to erase that. that email then. Never mind. Yeah. You were in the middle. I heard the, the keys <laughs> typing as you were saying, like, please, you know, Kansas city public library, be aware that this young man or this old man now stole your book. So I actually contacted them because I had felt guilty and said, 
what I what I told him was, yeah, I moved away, which technically I have. And I found this old library book that I just must have never returned. And I'm wondering if I could just, it didn't feel right to me. So I'd like to pay for it. And she said, well, you can send it back to us. And I said, no, it's just really messed up. at this point. It's in terrible condition. I would just feel better if I paid for it. And she said, yeah. And it was like 50 bucks. So I, a, I know I could have bought a brand new one for much cheaper, but this is the book. This is the book that helped to inspire me and has Kiki's name written in the back because she had checked it out a bunch of times and I had checked it out and stuff. So this book, the physical item means a lot more than just, than just the amazing artwork that's inside. It's the actual physical book, you know? I wonder if they even have the other ElfQuest books in circulation at that library because, you know, books wear out over time. So I'm, I'm wondering if, <laughs> if that's like the lone ElfQuest book at the library that you paid for. <laughs> yeah, that could be. I don't know. I, I The other books that I remember from that time that was in a similar vein was there was a book called um, Espers or ESPers that was kind of a, it was drawn very realistically at the time that I remember. And it was about these young kids who had been like through a government program had been given like psionic abilities, almost like Firestarter, but, you know, not exactly that, but kind of inspired by that. And then they had a bunch of mainstream stuff that was more like X-Men, Hulk, Spider-Man, that kind of stuff. So, but the and I was attracted more to the artists. You know, it's more about to me that the art oh, yeah. is the 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 character. I don't, you know, I don't gravitate towards Wolverine unless like Jim Lee or Mark Silvestri or Lineal Francis Yu are drawing them, and then I'm like, I'm in it all the way. You know. So we're we're gonna start wrapping it up in a second. I really want to ask you. So things are kind of scary right now in the comics industry. Starting to get better. Mm-hmm. Comic shops need to stay open. We're a big fan of comic stores. We're a big fan of the mom and pa stores. Do you have any in particular that you want to shout out? And, and what, what they exactly mean to you? Why, why you why you appreciate them? Yeah, the the one so there's there's two shops. The two shops that I go to here locally in Kansas. One is called Elite Comics, and that's in Overland Park, Kansas. So that's when we're on the Kansas side. And then there's another one called Pulp Fiction Comics and Games that's on the Missouri side, which is closer to my house. And that's actually my primary shop. So, I mean, I don't, I, when I was much younger, I used to hang out at shops, not, not at either of those, but that's how I looked at comic book shops was like a place to congregate and sort of for lack of a better term, fellowship with your fellow geeks, you know, you know, just to talk about it. And then like message forums kind of replaced a little bit of that, but there's not the same interaction, you know, person to person interaction. So, but elite comics, they help to run the big local comic book convention here, the planet comic-con. And that's a big deal. That's grown hugely where we have, you know, CB Sobolski from Marvel comics. And we had Dan DiDio actually, he, was supposed to be at the show that that ended up getting postponed. So the, the show that got canceled because of the COVID thing yeah. um, that will now be rescheduled to August, assuming it doesn't get canceled then as well. But it, they those shows have attracted really big talent and helped to establish uh, Kansas City as like a, a, I don't know, like a city to be reckoned with, with the type of talent that lives here or is attracted here and stuff. Scotty Young moved here, Jason Aaron moved here. As you said, so that's a big deal to me is Elite Comics helping to run the local Planet Comic Con show that's huge now. 
and then Pulp Fiction comics and games. There was a time where I played some Magic the Gathering and would play up there. So I was like drawing comic books and then on the off chance that I would have a night off, I would go up there and play like in a booster draft or something. And they would not say who I was, which was good because it felt would have felt weird if people happened to be in comics and then I was playing against them. It would just be strange. And also if I order like extra books, you know, I always get it through, get them through Pulp Fiction and stuff. So uh, the guy who runs it, his name is Andy, is just a really nice, really funny, considerate guy that I have once, um, actually just a couple months ago, I was up there just sketching because I had some sketches to do and I was just chit-chatting with him. And it's a great, I mean, comic book shops in general are great places to find people that even if it's not a specific comic book that you are aware of, they're interested in that type of thing. So you can, there's like a similar energy. And with, with Andy, as soon as I mentioned ElfQuest, he, man, he knew so much, way more about specifically the story side of stuff than I did. And it was like getting it just an unexpected dissertation on <laughs> the sort of influences <laughs> that probably led to the Wendy, the Penny sort of going in the direction that they did with the story and I don't know, it's just, you know, you don't always have the time to do that at a comic book shop, but I would, I, I hate that they're having such, such troubles along with a lot of other stores and not stores, but a, a lot of other business types in this, in this economy with all the, you know, social distancing and stuff like that. So I hope that, you know, as many of them can, can hold on and stick around as possible. So in, in that vein, tell our listeners what they can order right now. <clears throat> featuring Freddie Williams II. Oh, okay. Yeah. You have so, some stuff coming up that you, you, you got yeah. the, the Robin thing coming up. Yes. Man, has that actually come out yet? Because I, I, I remember see, I, I had received – so what we're talking about for anyone who's listening, there's an 80-page giant uh, oversize, not large as in you know tall or, or wide, but just thick, like it's a 100-page special featuring different short stories of Robin in there. And I drew, I think it's a 10 page story. I can't remember now, but it's a uh, Tim Drake. Tim Drake's my favorite Robin. I love drawing Robin, but for, I already had my, my comp copies. So every time that I do work for DC or IDW or whatever, they'll send me some free copies of the printed book. I already had received those, but I, I did that not come out yet. I thought it had physically come out, but maybe it didn't because the diamond shut down. Yeah, I, I I thought it was I thought it was on hold because of the diamond shutdown, but I, I could okay. be completely and totally mistaken. Okay, well uh, let's whether it's out or not. The the books that I personally have involvement with that I think you should order are I there is Batman Ninja Turtles Volume Three. The hardcover is supposed to come out, or maybe it is currently out. I believe it's supposed to come out this week, so the the last week of May. So that has all six issues of Batman Ninja Turtles plus a big sketch section in the back of like a bunch of pencil studies that I did of different characters and stuff. So that gives you the full story in a hardcover. There's Robin, the 80th anniversary special. So I only did a short story in that, but there's a lot of really cool stories. I got to see a PDF of the whole book and, and flip through the comp copy to, you know, I didn't read every book, but it, it was a, a great uh, variety of different Robins through. It's like stories throughout the years of Robins. Let's see, I've done the covers for a series called uh, Transformers versus uh, the Terminator. So I didn't draw the interiors, but it's from IDW, and it's I did it's a four issue mini series. And I know issue one has already come out, but then that's when things got put on hold. So, you know, 
I think issue two will probably come out within the next month or so. And then I did the cover for issue, a variant cover for an upcoming issue of the Ninja Turtles. I don't know if they've announced it, but I'll just say it here. Issue, I think issue 105 and then issue 108. So I'm still involved with the Turtles. Nice. I love drawing stuff with the Turtles. I would, in a slightly, slightly altered reality, if the COVID stuff didn't happen or whatever, I would have had a, a much bigger involvement with the turtle stuff. But, you know, instead of going the direction of the, of the creator owned stuff right now, I want to do creator owned stuff, but I just, we weren't sure where it fit. And then, you know, this sort of told us which direction to go in. And then I did a cover for, there's a podcast that is called voyage to the stars and they have a, and they have a comic book that's coming out. And I did one of the covers for the first issue of that. So, and a few covers for G.I. Joe. So over at IDW, I think issues 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, there was like five issues in a row that I did covers for. So I've got a lot of work that's floating out there, but uh, most of it right now are, that's about to come out is uh, cover work. So for G.I. Joe, uh, Terminator, or Transformers versus the Terminator, that podcast cover, which is called uh, Journey to the Stars, and then Batman Ninja Turtles Volume 3, the hardcover, and then Robin the 80th anniversary one all right you guys so go out there order all that stuff and freddie williams we're gonna have to keep our ears to the ground for the uh tim the upcoming tim seeley project yes um, yeah because that sounds rad i can't wait to hear more about that if if and when you want to come back on the show to talk about it i'll make sure that you get a better interviewer because i'm sucking <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! What are you talking about? No, this this was great. I hope I I hope I didn't you know go on too long. I have a tendency just to be long winded, but oh no, dude, um, we we love it, we love it. And I mean, it, it's one thing to just talk about the next upcoming project. It's another to get into process and where you are when you're doing stuff. And I really that's one thing that interests me because I mean I'm going to read the comics anyway, but actually <laughs> getting the the behind the scenes and getting to know the creators behind it. That's that's the fun part for me. So Freddie Williams, the second man, thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you for having me on. And you did an excellent job interviewing me. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't put yourself down. <laughs> well done. <laughs> thank you very much, man. Take it easy. And man, wash your hands and uh, <laughs> <All right. laughs> wear the mask. Okay. <laughs> In Alabama right now, the rates are, it, it went up in two weeks. It went up over a third. Of oh, okay. The yeah. So don't go to Alabama anytime soon. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we, we are very careful. We don't actually leave the house much anyway, but we're, we have like a pretty established protocol of how to wipe everything down once we do go out and then come back and, and take control of that stuff. So we definitely wash our hands and we, are careful with that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. And I mean, we, we have two kids, kids are nasty. So we're making them live on the porch right now. So <laughs> uh, occasionally I'll, I'll pour some water out of, you know, just through the back window. I'll just pour, throw yeah. them some water. Yeah. It makes a puddle on the ground and they can drink from that. Yeah. Yeah. Throw them a snack pack or two. They're good. <laughs> anyway, Freddie, take it easy, man. Thanks. Uh, great talking to you. Thanks. Same here, man. Bye. All right. Take care. And we're back. We are back. Well, man, what'd you think? I think they had a lot of fun. And uh, 
and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about Freddy on that one, and I hope you did too. Yep, it's awesome. I I don't know. I, we're I'm astounded at what we're doing, dude. We're I mean, are you serious? <laughs> we're just sitting talking with Freddy. We just uh, tonight we we just had an amazing interview with interview with J H Williams the third. We're We've over had, we're over 400 episodes in. We're over 400 <laughs> episodes. We have people like Jerry Conway on and freaking Walt Simon freaking Walt Simonson and Louise Simonson came on. What? Dude, what? freaking freaking everybody that comes on. I, I, every time you have a guest, I'm like, really? They want to come on this show? But I mean, cool. Yeah. Why are they taking a career dive coming on? Right. Here? <laughs> <laughs> How much are we paying these people? <laughs> no, and all seriously, thank you so much to Freddie and Casey for putting that together. It sounds like you guys had an amazing time. And really, I can't wait to hopefully have Freddie on again someday. But if you guys like what you heard and you want to hear more of that, then head on over to spoilerverse.com. There is a ton of back issues. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I like it. Yep. In the in the pipeline there that you can peruse and and collect. Maybe put them on your hard drive in a fake cellophane bag and, <laughs> and enjoy back every, anytime you want. And it's free right now. It's totally free. free. So, I mean, if you want to buy a cellophane bag, that's going to cost you a penny or two. But the content is free. 100%. Yeah. 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 And uh, if you go to spoilerverse.com to get all this free content, there's so much other free content there for you to enjoy from other podcasts that are on our network, like Haphazard Adventures, or Birds in the Geekdoms, or Funny Book Forensics. There's so much cool stuff to go check out. Polygon Warriors. Yeah, yeah. And we've got uh, articles, and reviews, and previews, and tons of cool stuff up there, and a store where you can go buy a t-shirt, or a hoodie, or a mask, or anything like that to help support us. There's just there's so much you can do on the website that you should definitely go spend all your day there. There you go. All right, guys, we are out of here. I hope you enjoyed that because in an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind and read more. Uh-huh. Alan Moore.